So it's finally warming up here in Philadelphia, and around this time of year, I'm often asking people, people are asking each other, what are you most looking forward to about the summer when the weather warms up? That's a natural question to ask because humans are always forward-looking creatures. We always have to have something to look forward to, especially as we deal with hardships, pain, struggle in our lives. So when you look forward to your future, do you see a trustworthy and true substantial hope that there are good things coming in your future? Is it a good and certain enough hope to sustain you through the inevitable hardships of life? When you're in the winters, so to speak, uh, can you look ahead to a fixed hope that a spring is actually coming? Today we're finishing our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, It's an ancient summary of Christian doctrine that we've been looking at together on Sunday mornings for all of 2019, really, since the first Sunday of the year. And today we're going to finish up the creed by looking forward, because that's how the creed finishes up. The creed finishes up by pointing us ahead to a true and trustworthy hope for the future that we can actually rely on, that will be good. It's the hope that's found in the passage that was just read for us, the hope that was revealed to John, the guy that wrote this down for us, one of Jesus' first disciples, this vision of life everlasting. And so we're going to finish our study on the Apostles' Creed with these words from it. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the life everlasting. In a new creation, with God, for sure. So first, this life everlasting is in a new creation. So our passage begins in verse 1 with John's vision of this new heaven and new earth. And he says that the reason there's a new heaven and a new earth is because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, when he uses this language of a first heaven and a first earth, here right at the end of the Bible, he's actually referencing us back to the very beginning of the Bible. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first heaven and the first earth. What it means is God created the unseen realm, the heaven, and the seen realm, the earth. The immaterial realm, heaven, the material realm, the earth. And the reason both of those words are used is to emphasize that everything in existence is created by God. So if you wanted to do kind of a summary of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created everything. Applying that to Revelation 21, what it's telling us is that in the end, God will remake everything. He will recreate everything. So that verse 5, the voice coming from the throne tells us what? Behold, I am making all things new. There will be a new creation. Last week, we uh, looked at the part of the creed that talks about the resurrection of the body, confessed our faith that our bodies will actually be risen, though they die. But now what we're seeing is that not only will our bodies be risen and be made new, everything will be made new. Just as our bodies pass away before they are made new, the first heaven and the first earth will pass away before it is made new. Thanks to the advent of modern science, we know now uh, the mechanism through which our bodies die. And now we also have these predictions for the ways in which the earth will pass away. It's pretty much consensus now that a day is coming when the earth will pass away. But what this is telling us is that though that's true, much like our bodies, the earth will be resurrected. The earth will be made new, such that it's still the earth, but a fundamentally new earth. Still the heaven, but a fundamentally new heaven. Now, one of the ways in which it's new is told, us in, told to us in verse 2. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God. So when Christians die, 
today, their bodies go the same place everyone's body goes, into the ground or wherever um, they end up being laying. But their spirits go to be with the Lord in this heavenly realm, the city of God that is in the heavenly place, the unseen realm. But what this is telling us is that in the new creation, that heavenly city, that heavenly realm in which God dwells, in which the angels dwell, in which the spirits of the saints dwell, will come down to earth. The bodies will be resurrected and we will live forever with God on earth. In a new earth that has been fundamentally transformed by the heavenly city that has come down. So the new creation, the life everlasting, will therefore be a material existence. We will live in material bodies in a material new creation forever. So it's a material life. Furthermore, life everlasting, life in the new creation, is a communal life. It's city life. It's always worth noticing that what comes down out of heaven in Revelation 21 is the holy city, not the holy suburb, the holy farm, the holy national park, right? That means heaven, life everlasting, will look more like where we are today than like Phoenixville, Lancaster, Yosemite. It's a city, right? Why? Because God likes development. God created human beings and told them to develop the earth. Nature untouched is not God's ideal. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. But perhaps more fundamentally, God likes people, and cities are full of people. And so our eternal paradise, life everlasting, will be with other people. In fact, that's the focus here, because look at what the city is compared to in verse 2. A bride adorned for her husband. It's relational language, saying the life everlasting will be a personal relationship between God and his people, who throughout the Bible are represented as his bride. The heavenly city is more than a community, but the community of people is central to it. In fact, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, who was a 4th century Christian leader, lived in North Africa, uh, he defined a city as the association of a multitude of rational beings united by a common agreement on the objects of their love. That's in his book, actually, called The City of God. I put a picture of him up there. You know, people keep telling me I quote all these people and they don't know who they are. And so I decided, I'm going to give you, you know, at least, no one actually knows what Augustine looked like, but North African, it's probably a pretty good guess. So anyway, now you got a face to go with the name. I don't know if that's helpful. You know, if it is, great. If not, that's fine. The definition's good, though, okay? The association of a multitude of rational beings united by a common agreement on the objects of their love. So that's the essence of what the Bible's talking about here. This holy city is a community. It's the communion of the saints, as we called it earlier in the creed. It's citizens of this heavenly city now together. So what happened, what's happening today is we're gathering for worship, right? And we're a community here, united together around a common purpose, to, to praise God. But when we do that here in this room today, we're actually joining our voices with a song that is taking place in heaven today, sung by the angels, sung by the spirits of Christians who have died and gone to be with the Lord. We have communion with them today. But we're separated by this distance of heaven and earth, right? Even on earth... As we come together to worship today, we are joining with Greater Exodus Baptist Church right up the street, Epiphany Fellowship farther north, Liberty on either side of us, all the churches of the city of Philadelphia that are praising Jesus together today, and throughout our world today on different continents, on all the, inha- all the habitable continents of our world, have people gathering praising Jesus at least once a week. So we're gathered with them, but what's happening is right now we're separated by space. 
in the end, that space will be done away with. The heavenly city will come down. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will join together and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The life to come, the life everlasting, will be material and it will be communal. It will be a city life of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together. This is what you were created for. You were created not only to have individual spiritual life with God. You were created with a material body, to live in a material world, in communion with other spiritual and material beings. So it is good and right for you to want and enjoy material things, to desire shelter, clothing, food, to enjoy such things, to even develop such things. If you have any of those things, it is because God has provided you with them that you might richly enjoy them with thanksgiving to him. They're good. Part of his good creation, and they will be there in the life everlasting. You were created for relationships with other human beings. In the first creation, the first heaven and first earth, God makes everything and he calls it good, except for one thing it was not good for man to be alone. And man will not be alone eternally. So it is right and good and natural to want and enjoy deep, loving, intimate relationships with other human beings. And that is exactly what will happen. That is what will be consummated in this life everlasting, in the city of God. But in the present life, following Jesus often means that you will lose material pleasures, that you will even lose relationships in some way. I shouldn't say often. It always means that in some measure, you will have to sacrifice those things in order to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you don't renounce all that you have, if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and friend, you can't be my disciple. So following him costs these things that are good even in and of themselves that you were created to have. If you follow Jesus, giving regularly, joyously, and sacrificially your money, to the work of the church, to the needs of the materially poor is not optional. It's commanded. So if you obey that command, guess what? You're going to have less money, right? You're going to lose materially. Um, if people find out you're a Christian and you believe so-and-so or you're part of a church that teaches so it, it could actually cost you social capital, right? It may be harder for you to get certain jobs. You may not be in certain circles. Uh, you may even, as a Christian, not be able to take certain jobs because they require you to sin. It's in your job description. Now you can't do it. So it costs you materially in various ways. In parts of our world today, throughout history, and for the original audience that John gives this book to, it could even cost you your material life. You could die for professing faith in Christ. If you become a Christian, except in very rare cases, you shouldn't cut off your relationships with people who aren't Christians. But they may cut you off. It may cost you relationships it will put some distance between you because now you won't be united by a common agreement on the object of your love. You have a new love, right? So you'll feel that sense of, I just don't belong the way that I used to with people that I was good friends with. There's a loss of relationship there. There may be social circles that you just don't have access to anymore because you're a Christian. They'll find out you believe that. No, no, no. We don't, we don't tolerate that in our circles. You have new responsibilities. You have worship gatherings to attend. You have relationships to develop. And so you just find you don't have as much time 
for some other things that you might have invested yourself in. And throughout the world today and in the history of the church and for the original audience, your, your own family might disown you, right? Renounce you if you follow Jesus. Now, in response to these losses, God will often provide you with things on earth, right? In surprising ways even, ways you wouldn't have expected. So like if you forsake relationships to follow Jesus, you get a new set of relationships. You become a part of a church, right? You get a new family, a new community. But let's face it, church isn't perfect, right? Church is going to let you down sometimes. Sometimes you give your money away, you give your time away, and God provides for you in ways you never could have expected. And sometimes you just give the money away. You don't get any richer. You're just out that whatever you gave away. So why follow Jesus, right? Why follow Jesus if it's going to cost you those things and he doesn't promise to give them back to you in this life? Because there's a life to come. There's a life everlasting. And in the life everlasting, it will be material and it will be communal. Every good desire that God created you with will be satisfied in this life everlasting. Every material pleasure, every relational need, met in full in the life everlasting. You will not be hungry, you will not be unclothed, you will not be homeless, you will not be alone. And yet, if that's where it ended, if that was the ultimate blessing of the life everlasting, you'd be eternally dissatisfied. Remember Augustine's definition, I think it's still up there, yeah. What's a city? What's the city of God? The association of a multitude of rational beings united by a common agreement on the objects of their love. So what's the object of the love of the citizens of the city of God? Well, we've seen we love the material things God's given us. We love the people that God's put around us. Those are good and right. But if your love ends there, if your love terminates there, you'll be eternally dissatisfied. Because those things, while good, are not ultimate. They can't bear the weight of your ultimate love. It's why once people's basic needs are met, the amount of money they have correlates very poorly with how happy they are. It just doesn't work. It's why the only people who think that marriage is the key to happiness are people that aren't married. Because <laughs> those of us who are know, hey, it's nice, but it didn't solve my ultimate needs, right? And if you go into marriage expecting it to do that, you're going to be a disaster to be married to. It's why you can have money and friends and comforts on earth and still feel like something's missing because something is missing. You were created for more than to be safe and comfortable and have some friends. You were created for more than the creation. You were created for the creator himself, to know him. And so the life everlasting will be in a new creation and will be with God. So look at verse 3. We read of a loud voice from the throne, and what does the voice say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He is the common object of love for the citizens of the city of God. Though we walk by faith on earth, a day is coming when by sight we will see his face. We will see his glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And not only will we see with 20-20 vision in our physical eyes, we will see in what the Bible calls the eyes of the heart. We will know him as he is. 
as much as it's possible for a finite creature to know an infinite creator, we will know him without any of the imperfections and we will love him without any of the divided love that so often tears us away from him in this life. Verse two says, the bride is adorned, right? She's made beautiful. Why? So she can look at herself in the mirror? No. The bride is adorned for her husband. We exist for him. You exist for God. To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And that is what is coming in the life everlasting. The life everlasting will be glorious, will be great, most fundamentally, because God will be there. I love sports, but heaven will not be glorious because I'll get to play tennis and basketball there, though I hope to. I love my grandfather who died in 2007, but heaven will not be glorious, ultimately, because I'll see him there, though I hope to. Heaven will be glorious because God will be there because we will see his glory shining forever in the face of his son. And in seeing that, we will be satisfied. We won't need anything else, though we will have everything else. I want to show you just how pervasive this is. I want to get a little taste of how much this shows up all throughout the Bible, because I just realized studying this this week, like, I don't think about this enough. I doubt you think about it enough. I certainly don't preach about it enough, which I'm sorry about. We're going to try to improve that, but let's start today, okay? So Psalm 1611, David's talking to God. This is what he says. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see it there? In his presence, fullness of joy. That means maximum. It can't get any better. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore, never ending. So when you think of life everlasting, don't just think of the everlasting part. Think of the life. Don't just think of the quantity of life. Think of the quality of life. It is fullness of joy. It is life everlasting. And it is forevermore. It is life everlasting. It's the one thing that nothing on earth can bring, no matter how good it is. Every pleasure you have on earth, it could always be a little better. It's never fullness of joy, and it could always end. It's never forevermore. It will end. And so God is this infinite spring of joy that you can never reach the bottom of, that you can never get too much of, that you can never tire of. In verse 6, he says, I will give him drink from the spring of the water of life. What's he saying? He's saying, I will give him myself. I will be his God. And they will be my people. Let's keep going. Psalm 27, 4. Psalmist says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. That's it that the psalmist needs. What is it? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that's what's granted in Revelation 21. That's the answer to the psalmist's prayer, the life everlasting. Jesus says he came to give life and give it abundantly. John 10, 10, a lot of people know that verse. More famous one, John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But what is eternal life? Jesus defines it for us. What is abundant life? Jesus tells us later in John's gospel, John 17, 3. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, speaking to God, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Later in that same chapter in John, Jesus is praying, he's anticipating going to be with his father, and he's praying that his disciples would be with him where he is. And why does he want them to be with him? Just so they'll live forever? No. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To what? To see my glory. Life everlasting. The purpose of it is that we might see his glory. I'm telling you, this is all over the Bible. I'm gonna give you one more example, okay? Because I was in my Bible reading plan this week. And if you use like a Bible reading plan to get through the Bible in a year, you're gonna find it every week. This was where it was this week for me. 2 Thessalonians, verse 10 of chapter one. It speaks of his coming again. And what does it say he comes to do? 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So why follow Jesus if it costs you material pleasures, if it costs you relationships, even if it costs you your life? Because there will be material pleasures in life everlasting because there will be a community in the life everlasting, but ultimately because God will be in the life everlasting. Your relationship with him will be consummated. You will glorify him and enjoy him forever, the very thing you were created to do. You will get him in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's worth the cost of anything. You're never losing, ultimately, if you follow Jesus. I've already touched a bit on the loss of money, the loss of family and friends. So let me touch a bit on the loss of romance, how that might be a cost in following Jesus, especially because the bride imagery is used here in this passage. So there are plenty of you in the room today who I know are single and who don't want to be. And you think that if I just dropped some of what Jesus says about marriage and sexuality, that I might not have to be single anymore. Some of you are attracted to people of the same sex. And you think, if I dropped what Jesus says about that, then I could find someone to be sexually involved with, to even have a committed relationship with. Some of you are attracted to people of the opposite sex. And you think, if I drop what Jesus says about only marrying people who are also following him, about keeping sex to something that exists only within the marriage covenant, then maybe I could have a committed relationship And so the fear is, if I follow Jesus, I'll end up alone. And you weren't made to be alone. So, here's what I can't and can say to that in the name of Jesus. What I can't say is if you just follow Jesus and you wait, right? You hold out for God's best. Then God will give you a desire and an attraction to someone of the opposite sex who also is attracted to you, who's following Jesus and who wants to marry you and you'll live happily ever after. I hope that happens. God could do that in a second. He could snap his fingers and do that. That's nothing for him, okay? So I pray for that for you. If that's what you want, I will join you in wanting that with you and praying to that end for you. But God doesn't promise it. He just doesn't. I can't say that. I can't say that even if you remain single, all of your your relational desires will be met in the church. I'm hopeful for that. I'm very hopeful for that because I've seen people have deep relationships with others, meaningful, satisfying relationships that aren't sexual, that aren't romantic. 
You shouldn't believe the lie that that's the, the zenith, that's the apex of relationships. It's happened, but I can't guarantee it. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, and that means we screw up, right? It means you may come in with certain expectations of what you want your relationships to look like and find that they fall short of that. And if your expectation for those relationships is that the people will be omnipresent, omnipotent, loving presence in your life, that's, that's what God is, they can't be that, and they will let you down. So that's what I can't promise. Here's what I can. If you follow Jesus, you will not be eternally alone. You won't be. Not only will you be a citizen in the city of God, enjoying communion with other human beings from every tribe, tongue, and nation, you will be eternally married, the bride adorned for her husband. Now men, I know that's a hard illustration to get excited about, but we're going to tell women in verse 7 that they have to be sons of God, okay? So just bear with me and try to see the essence of what this is saying. The essence of it is, you know, why is marriage a blessing? It's not perfect, but why is it a blessing? Because you're fully known and truly loved by a person that you think the world of. They see your worst, and they stay, and they love you. Now, do you see why that institution will be totally unnecessary and obsolete in the life everlasting? in the new heaven and new earth? Jesus says, in heaven they are not married nor given in marriage. Why? Because God will be there. We will be adorned for this relationship in which we are fully known and truly loved by the one that we couldn't possibly think more of, that we couldn't possibly want something more than if we really saw him as he was. If you see his face, like this passage is talking about, you're not going to say, well, but I really want that person to love me. You're going to have all you need in him, and you will be satisfied. The life everlasting will be glorious because God will be there. And furthermore, because God will be there, evil will not be. Evil and its effects will be gone. So verse 4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Even if you're like me and you don't cry very much, you've had hardship in life. Nobody gets through this thing unscathed. And some of you have had a lot of it. Some of you, it's been the overwhelming majority of your life. You don't know what it's like not to cry much. You've been oppressed, abused, violated. God sees that. And he cares about it. And a day is coming when you will see him and he will not blame you for it. He will not ignore it. He will heal you from it. He will not look away from your tears, tell you to toughen up. He'll wipe away your tears. He'll comfort you. And you will never feel that pain again. It will be gone forever. It will seem like a small thing in comparison to the joy that you have in him. Death And everything that comes with it will be no more. Nothing left to cause you pain even. Joy, fullness, forever. So if you want to start picturing heaven, it can be valuable to do this. Picture a city, picture Philadelphia without any of the death, without any of the pain, without any of the fears, without any of the mourning that so often accompanies it. Now how could that be possible? Well, verse 8 tells us, that those whose lives are characterized by such things will not be there. i got to level with you. Uh, as a pastor, it's really tempting 
and passages like this to just cut off the reading at verse 7? Because it all sounds pretty positive before then. And then you get to verse 8. I feel like, wow, where'd that come from? Now we find out that this glorious new creation exists and is coming, but there are some who will not be there, who will not be a part of this heavenly city. Why? Because they're not united by a common agreement on the object of their love. They loved something else more than they loved God himself. So take cowards and liars, first and last thing on the list. They are people who loved their life in this world more than they loved Jesus. So that when their life was threatened, because of their allegiance to Christ, they denied him. Cowardly, lying. Take the murderer. The murderer loves his glory more than he loves the glory of God. So that when people threaten him and his glory, he tries to control and intimidate them through violence. When people dishonor him, he retaliates against them. The sexually immoral is the one who loves his bodily, physical appetites in this life more than he loves Jesus himself. So that in order to satisfy those bodily, physical appetites, he's willing to forsake Jesus and his commandments. The sorcerer and the idolater is the one who loves a false god, something in creation, more than they love the creator himself. So such people simply aren't going to want to be in the new creation. Because remember, who's in the center of the new creation? God. If you don't love him, you're not going to fit there. The people who are outside are ultimately those who chose to be outside, who said, I want something more than I want him. God can't give life everlasting to people without giving himself because there is no other source of life everlasting. He can't give you drink from a spring that doesn't exist. He is the spring. If you don't want him, you won't have life everlasting. Their portion will be in the lake of fire, which is the second death. They continue in a state of everlasting existence, but not of everlasting life. Life everlasting will be glorious because God will be there. And because he will be there, neither evil nor those who identify with it will be there. And finally, this outcome is for sure going to happen. So in verse 5, God tells John, write these things down, for they are trustworthy and true. It's why we have the book of Revelation today, because John was obedient. He wrote it down. It's been transmitted to us. God doesn't uh, offer proof that his words are trustworthy and true. They're trustworthy and true because they're his, and he's trustworthy and true. Besides, uh, what proof could he offer? It's, he's telling us the end of a story. You can't see the end of a story until you get to the end of the story. By definition, there's not a proof. There's a promise. And the choice is put to us whether we'll trust that promise. Now, you can say, well, I wish I was born later after the promise has already been proven, but you wouldn't exist, actually. The, the, the time where people are being created and we're being fruitful and multiplied is before the new creation. God hasn't written the story that way. The choice is on you to trust him or not. But his words are trustworthy and true. They're so trustworthy and true that in verse 6, he says, it is done. This is a done deal. It hasn't happened yet, but it's done. And he can be so sure because, as he says, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. First creation, he did that all by himself. Final new creation, he will do that too. And the Alpha and the Omega means he's the Lord of everything in between. He's the ruler over all of history, working it all according to the counsel of his will toward this appointed end of life everlasting.
So when you read prophecy from God, that's not prediction, that's promise. We predict things that we don't have the power to control. Weather people, they make predictions, right? They're actually getting pretty good at it too. I mean, we give weather people a hard time, but like I check that app, it's usually pretty accurate. But it's not always, right? On Friday, I was gonna be walking around four o'clock and the app told me it's gonna rain at five o'clock. Now I took that way too literally. And I was like, I don't need my rain jacket. I don't need an umbrella. I'm, I'm walking at four. Well, guess what? I got rained on, right? Because it was a prediction, not a promise. Even the promises we make, we don't have the power to make sure we can keep them. I can promise a friend I'll be at your birthday party, but if I get hit by a car on the way, I'm not going to be there. Because there's forces outside of me that are more powerful than I am. But the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he doesn't have that problem. There's no force greater than he is. What he says is going to happen will happen. This life everlasting is a trustworthy and true hope for the future. And there's nothing else that you can look forward to that has that kind of certainty. If God hasn't promised it, it's not trustworthy and true. There's always more powerful forces that can stop it. There's things we don't control. And and you need something, right? Like you go through hardship in life, you can't help it. You're going to look for something to hold on to about your future that keeps you going. Go through a tough breakup, what are you going to tell yourself? I'll find someone better. There's got to be someone better out there. Maybe. Again, we'll pray for that, right? I want that for you. It's not promised. It's not trustworthy and true. And if you put all your eggs in that basket, that's your hope for the future. When it doesn't come, you're not just going to be disappointed. You're going to be crushed. Or a person does come who can never satisfy that. You're always going to need more from them than they can give you. It's a recipe for dissatisfaction. It's a ladder to nowhere. What's, what's the point? What's the point of just living forever if the life itself is not glorious, if, that, that would be like being on a hike that never ends and, and never seeing the top, climbing and climbing and climbing. And, and I know Miley Cyrus says, you know, it's not about what's waiting on the other side, it's the climb. She's wrong. <laughs> it's about the end. You were created for more than a perpetual climb. You were created for the glory of God. And the glory of God is coming. It's a trustworthy and true hope. Nothing else that you put your hope in can give you that. I know we have a lot of confidence today in our ability to control the future. You know, just take the bull by the horns, think it, and you can make it a reality. But there's, there's limits, right? Like, you put your hope for the future in a promotion, and there's one promotion and five of you going for it, and you all put your hope in it, and you all think positive thoughts and try to manifest it. Four of you are going to find out that your hope for the future was not trustworthy and true. But here is a hope that is. Here is a hope that is trustworthy and true, because it is guaranteed by the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is not just the predictor of the future, not just the promiser of the future, the one who is the governor of the future, the ruler of the future, the Lord of the future. There will be a new material communal creation with God at the center, with evil no more and evil people no more. It is going to happen. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you manifest can stop this from coming true. Now, Where does that leave you and me? Well, can you really say that you've never been cowardly? You've never lied. I can't. I know there's been times where if I feel like I'm going to look better in the eyes of others, I'll shade the truth. I'll hold back on what is really true of me. Maybe you've never murdered anyone, but do you know Jesus includes anger under the commandment not to murder? Have you ever been angry with someone? 
sexual immorality. Jesus says if you look at someone you're not married to and desire sex with them, you're guilty of sexual immorality. You know, idolatry is not just bowing down to statues. It's looking to created things rather than the creator for your ultimate hope and happiness, significance and security. So what does it mean? It means all of us, by nature, are verse 8 people. Revelation 21, 8 people. And yet somehow, not everyone gets thrown into the lake of fire. How can that be? It can be because Jesus Christ left the first heaven and came to the first earth. It can be because the immaterial, eternal Son of God took on a material body. And in that material body, he was courageous. He held fast his testimony to the point of death. He was faithful, though we are faithless. He was despised by people, though he was ultimately lovable. Instead of taking life, instead of murdering, he gave his life. Instead of using the bodies of others to satisfy his sexual appetites, he gave his body so that we might have eternal pleasures at his Father's right hand. Instead of worshiping idols, he worshiped and served his Father alone. And yet on the cross, the lake of fire streams into him. All of our cowardice, all of our idolatry, all of our sexual immorality, murder, faithlessness was placed on him and the fire of God's wrath fell on him so that it would not fall on you and me. And because he took it, because he stood in the gap, because he obeyed his father to the point of death, he was risen in glory, freed from the lake of fire so that you and I through faith in him would never have to go there. That's the glory we will behold forever. The glory of the lamb that was slain on our behalf. Those who are citizens of the city of God who will be with him forever are not those who never sinned. It's those whose sins were covered by the blood of the lamb. It is not those who had no guilt. It's those whose guilt was atoned for by the blood of the lamb. It's not those who were righteous in and of themselves. It's ones who received the righteousness of the lamb who was slain through faith. It's those who received and rested upon him alone for salvation from the condemnation that they deserved. In fact, it's not even those who upon receiving him never sinned again. It's those who, though they continued to sin, were continually forgiven and transformed by the blood of the lamb who was slain. It's those who became something new in him, who were forgiven of all their sins and who are transformed in such a way that the things that are listed in verse 8 no longer characterize their life. They don't identify with them. It's not who they are most fundamentally. They're Christians, not cowards, sexually immoral, murderers. It's not their identity anymore. If those things characterize your life, if that's who you are really, it doesn't matter what you say, you will not be in the new creation. Your portion will be in the lake of fire. You can't embrace sin and embrace Christ at the same time. But if you turn from your sins to Jesus Christ, he will cleanse you, he will forgive you, and he will replace the you that is set on self and set on sin with a new you. You will be crucified with him and it will no longer be you who lives, but he will live in you and make you into something new 
not one who never sins again, but one who hates their sin and loves their God, rather than one who loves their sin and hates God. His invitation is right there in verse 6. What does he say? Come to me, thirsty. Come to him with nothing to offer, no good works of your own, with nothing but your sins, and he will give you drink. He will give you himself, the spring of living water that never runs out. Through faith in him, conquer the temptation to turn back and hold on to your safety and your money and your comforts and your relationships. And he will give you life everlasting, material, communal, city life with him at the center. And you will glorify him and enjoy him forever. That is life everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the spring of living water. You are the one for whom we were created. And yet we have fallen so far short of your glory. All we have gone astray, Lord. We have turned to our own way. We have worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. But we thank you that you have sent your son to take on a material body and a reasonable soul, to die in our place, to bear our sins all the way to the cross, to suffer under your wrath so that we could receive the gift of new life in him, forgiveness of sins, and this eternal inheritance in a new heaven and a new earth in a new creation to dwell with you forever. God, give us great joy in this. Strengthen and confirm our hope in this. May be, these be the most trustworthy and true words of our lives. And may we be willing to part with everything. May we renounce all that we have in order to be your disciples. May nothing seem too glorious to part with when we have the hope of your glory in heaven waiting in front of us. It is trustworthy and true. It is coming. God, rescue us from this mentality that there's something better on earth that we need to hold on to. This is nothing in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed. May it be trustworthy and true to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.